Hi everyone, my name is Laura, and you're listening to LF Photospace, a podcast dedicated to all things photography from my perspective. I hope everyone's having a great week, and I hope that you are making the most of your International Women's Month, or just overall Women's Month, and that you are striving to be your best female version of yourself. And for those of you who may be male and who may be listening, please pay us the respect that we need, okay? Um, But without further ado, we're going to go ahead and interrupt our Women's Month idea and concepts to bring you one of the biggest masters, if not the biggest master of photography, Mr. Henri Cartier-Bresson. And we will talk about how he came about as a photographer and we'll give you a couple of tips and perhaps even share with you a mini autobiography slash video take on how to photograph like the famous Henri Cartier-Bresson. And so without further ado, we will get started. Henri Cartier-Bresson had intuitively chronicled decisive moments regarding human life around the world with poetic documentary style. His photographs in part were spontaneous where these instances also became spontaneous, but they were also full of meaning, mystery, and humor in terms of being precise and having great visual organization. And for the latter part of his work, although tremendously very, very difficult to imitate, he has been able to influence many other photographers throughout his lifetime. His photographs may be and can be summed up through a phrase of his own under the decisive moment. And what he called and considered a decisive moment was a sort of magical instant when the world falls into apparent order and meaning and may be apprehended by a gifted photographer. Cartier-Bresson was born in Chanteloupe and studied literature at Cambridge University in 1928. And he began photographing in 1931 and purchased his first Leica camera in 1933. He then joined the ethnographic expedition to Mexico that following year. And in 1935, he began to study cinematography with Paul Strand. He also assisted Jean Renoir in 1936 and in 1939, and by then he had made his own documentary by the name of Return to Life, and it was actually processed and presented in 1937. He was also drafted into the film and photo unit of the French army in about 1940, and Unfortunately, at that time, he was also taken as prisoner by the Germans that very same year. After three years of intense imprisonment, he was able to escape and then he began working for the French pretty much underground. By 1943, he had made a series of portraits of artists, including Matisse, Bernard and Brock, and through 1944 and 1945, Bresson had photographed the occupation of France and its liberation as well. In 1947, he co-founded the Magnum Agency with Robert Kappa, or Robert uh, Kappa 
If you don't know about him, please read up on him and Google him if you must because he is another great influencer in the shape and the form of how documentary photography, if not historical photography, began to take its shape. He also worked alongside Shim, better known as David Seymour and George Roger, and he spent the next 20 years pretty much traveling around the world and understanding different cultures and different aspects of other um, humanistic forms, humanistic ideas, and humanistic contrasts. He was able to receive an Overseas Press Club Award for a total of about four times. He had also become one of the best photographers, if not the best photographer, and received an award for the American Society of Magazine Photographers in 1953. And he had also received the Prix de Société Française de Photographie. Sorry, my French is horrible. But he did receive that award in 1959, among other honors. Around 1966, he actually left Magnum, and although they did remain his agent, he was able to devote himself to perhaps what he wanted to do next, which was the art of drawing. And Bresson's extensive publications also included um, one that was called From One China to Another, published in 1954, The Europeans and the People of Moscow in 1955, the Face of Asia in 1972, and The Decisive Moment in 1973, which I was privy to and read up about while I was studying photography. And so there are many different exhibitions that are currently taking place that are exhibiting a lot of Henri Cartier-Bresson's work. They are worth traveling to see. Um, New York is by far one of them. They do have a collection of his photographs from the International Center of Photography. And there's also another exhibition at ICP that is involved with the foundation Cartier-Bresson. And these are exhibits or photo works that are worth traveling for, like I just said, and it'll give you a different uh, perspective of how he viewed photography overall and what his work was attained and how it was attained. So if you want to look up that information, I definitely encourage you to do it. I believe that understanding a photographer as, as best you can specifically Henri Cartier-Bresson is to be able to understand photography a little bit better and to kind of understand where photojournalism comes from, street photography comes from, and how they all basically link together. And not only did Henri Cartier-Bresson shape the field of photography, but he did so by being lively. He was candid, he used a lot of black and white film, focused on working with black and white. He also embraced documentarian intimacy and a sort of dynamic approach which appeared to be poetic in a sense. And his concept of the decisive moment 
which a lot of photographers today um, feel that they they grew up on or they basically base their photographic skills based on this one decisive moment um, basically means that they're capturing these images through their shutters at the exact right time to, uh, to achieve the ideal shot. It's almost like you're saying you're at the right place at the right time. Um, and again, Henri Cartier-Bresson was particularly very influential for those who followed photojournalists or photojournalism overall, street photography, anyone that was involved with street photographing or street photography circles that focused primarily on the art of photographing individuals and subjects on the street. And because Cartier-Bresson was able to study literature, he felt a sort of emphasis to be dynamic, to be able to transcend through his feelings, through his emotions. And it was a sort of sense that he knew that he had to convey while, you know, perhaps photographing someone very simple walking down the street or perhaps an activity that was taking place at a very particular time and so on and so forth. But one of the most famous photographs that I can tell you about and I can talk about is, it's called the Place de l'Europe, is actually the most successful of all of his images. And it's a snapshot of a man very happily hopping over a flooded area in Paris. And it captures the moment just before the man, the man's heels actually hit the water. So that is one of the most um, successful images that he was able to capture. And it's one of his most famous, if not the most famous. I'm also going to share with you a little bit of a very cool and very interesting article that I found while trying to gather as much information on Henri Cartier-Bresson as I could. And there is a an article actually from the NPA, which is the voice of visual journalists. And it is an article written by Claude Cookman, where he describes and he gives us a little bit of a synopsis on his impact into photojournalism as a photographer. So I'll read a little bit from that and you guys can better understand what this type of impact um, he had or what, what this type of impact would continue to have throughout his time as a photographer and for those photojournalists who may or may not have had the opportunity to work alongside him or basically base their work on on a start as the type of photographer that he was. And so the editor's note includes that the information that we're reading was actually taken from an essay by Henri Cartier-Bresson from a book called The Man, The Image, and the World, a retrospective. And it was um, actually 
a catalog as well that was published as part of the Cartier-Bresson retrospective at the opening of the Photographer's Foundation in Paris. And he passed away in 2004, but his death reminds many of us that there was a huge debt that many photojournalists owed to this French giant who basically stopped actively photographing more than 30 years ago. And so Cartier-Bresson had his phrase, which we just talked about, the decisive moment, and it was probably the first association for many. He was able to capture the climatic instant, whether it was a peak of sports action or a subtle emotional interaction, he had become the gold standard for many of today's photojournalists. But history and Cartier-Bresson's very own words will perhaps enrich many of today's photojournalists' understanding, if not most of them um, or many of them. He was actually responsible for capturing action, which appeared to be very difficult and very rare, with the old view cameras that were mounted onto the tripods that had those bulky handheld press cameras, as well as this, and this type of camera was called the Graflex. And that change from using that type of camera came about when the 35 millimeter Leica camera appeared in Germany, of all places, in the mid-1920s. And beginning by the 1930s with a series of photographs, of course, here came Cartier-Bresson and he showed the world that a Leica camera, which was, again, a 35 millimeter camera, very simple and very light to use in comparison to those old bulky tripod cameras, was the ability to achieve spontaneity at an instant. And that will forever remain his biggest legacy in the world of photojournalism, if not photography's history. And so when we talk about his decisive moment, um, this gentleman explains that those moments were very closely associated with the type of signature photographs that he took, and one in particular that he took in 1932 behind a railroad terminal in Paris. And so again, we, we're going more into detail of that one photo image that I just described. But this gentleman talks about it in a sense where you can actually close your eyes and almost picture it. And he says, it freezes a leaping man a millisecond before his foot splashes down in a huge puddle. And so for Henri Cartier-Bresson, the decisive moment meant more than just a stopping action. Trained as a painter in the classical French composition was extremely vital for what he did. And such compositions could be seen in that 1932 photo with the repetition of the forms and the placement of the focal point, which he loved to focus on. And in a preface of a book that was published in 1952 called The Decisive Moment, it would require reading for all photojournalists. So basically it was subconsciously dedicated to many of those photojournalists. 
in that time and perhaps even now. Cartier-Bresson was able to define his aesthetic as the simultaneous recognition in a fraction of a second of the significance of an event as well as of a precise organization of forms. And what is likely to be forgotten, according to the writer, is that Cartier-Bresson's use of the Leica camera showed very modern photojournalism in a new ethic, perhaps because it was many, many photojournalists were used to using the large format cameras with those holders and holding the, the sheets of film. A lot of the earlier photojournalists commonly staged many of their pictures. So basically, they came up with an idea, they set it up and almost instantly, according to the, the type of camera that we were talking about, seemed to be as if they were taken in that particular instant. And that was not. Um, and in contrast, Cartier-Bresson had practiced unobtrusiveness on his way to capturing unposed photographs and the likes. And this also allowed him to respect his subjects while also obtaining their natural, perhaps a more natural way of revealing these particular images of these individuals and these subjects. And again, his unobtrusive approach allowed him to keep photographs of the assassinated Mahanda's Ghatni, or I'm sorry, Mahatma's Gandhi, lying in state in January of 1948. Um, there was another photographer who worked for life, and her name was Margaret Burke White, who had also photographed Gandhi with a large camera and flash. And her film had actually been confiscated by the Mahatma's devotees who considered her actions disrespectful because he was actually laying in rest or in peace, resting in peace. And so Henri Cartier-Bresson was able to articulate his ethic and the unobtrusive approach that now is widely recognized as a fly on the wall. And so on the preface of that book, The Decisive Moment, he clearly states, and I quote, we are bound to arrive as intruders, he wrote. It is essential, therefore, to approach the subject on tiptoe. It's no good jostling or elbowing. And as part of his unobtrusiveness, he was able to reject artificial lighting and rather work with natural lighting and the natural surroundings. And if you look at a lot of his work, many of the photographs that he had taken were pretty much in a natural sense. He, so he didn't use a flashlight or he didn't use the flash on the camera. And it was out of respect for the actual light because he felt that unless a photographer observes such conditions as these, he may become an intolerably aggressive character. And that was quote, quoted directly by him. And it's something that he said. And of course, humanism, that became another element of his ethic also infused contemporary photojournalism. I mean, there were a few exceptions, according to the writer, but Henri Cartier-Bresson 
for the latter part and for the most part was able to photograph people. And his, his individuals or his subjects are seen with warmth, curiosity, empathy, and the occasional humor or perhaps occasionally humorous. It is no accident that of, a, of 502 images that Edward Steigen chose for his Family of Man exhibition, 10 of those were by Henri Cartier-Bresson. He felt that and spoke often about how photography required the alignment of not just the head and the hand, but also the heart. And his humanism extended beyond respecting his subjects and also in order to serve his audience. And so writing in 1952, according to the, the writer of the article, at the height of anxiety about the nuclear arms race, Cartier-Bresson characterized his role as supplying photographs to a world weighted down with preoccupations. One was full of people needing the companionship of images. And then a few years later, he told an interviewer that the important thing about our relations with the press is that it provides us with the possibility of being in close contact with life's events. And what is most satisfying for many of today's photographers is not just recognition, success, and so on and so forth. It's actually communication. And so you ask yourself, and he, and he, he said this clearly. He said, what you say can mean something to other people, can be of a certain importance. And so Cartier-Bresson's humanism aligned with a social conscience as well. And during his formative years in the 1920s through the 1930s, he saw that the effects of the worldwide depression and the rise of Hitler's Nazism had taken a toll on the individuals. And it affected individuals overall because of the dramatic events that took place. And as a young journalist, he also felt compelled to witness these problems with his camera. And so while explaining his change from painting to photography, he told one interviewer, the adventurer in me felt obliged to testify with a quicker instrument than a brush to the scars of the world. He was engaged in leftist politics during the 1930s and had become active in the Green Party in his later years. And so according to the writer, the person who wrote the article, running through his work, there were numerous images that exposed the contradictions of capitalism like homeless couple, bedding down for the night in front of a store window with a large IBM logo, and et cetera, and et cetera. And with many great figures, again, according to our um, author or the writer of the article, Cartier-Bresson's life and his work had enveloped themselves into myth. And for the record, um, an occasion that he did use a flash or where he did use a flash, he did crop his pictures and he did allow himself to be photographed. And we're talking about Cartier-Bresson. And although his wife, 
the photographer Martin Frank, and his colleagues at Magnum Photos, the agency which he co-founded with Robert Kappa, took place in 1947. And it appears there is some sort of misconception about his work. And so one of the most important misconceptions is that he was a single image photographer. And in numerous books and exhibitions, his work is actually shown as an aggregation of discrete photographs seemingly unrelated to each other. Basically, in a sort of contrast, his contact sheets and the contact sheets that were currently held by Magnum in Paris demonstrated that most of the great images that he took actually resulted from an extended picture story or stories that he shot for magazines like Harper's Bazaar, Life, Look, Holiday, Paris Match, Do, and Epoca. These reportages fell into three major categories, according to our author. Henri Cartier-Bresson had photographed news events such as the liberation of Paris, the funeral of Gandhi, the falling of Beijing, and the 1968 student rebellion in Paris. And in the early 1960s, he also photographed and wrote texts for a series of 16 portraiture stories for a London magazine by the name of The Queen. And so published under the running title, A Touch of Greatness, the stories that were profiled had and made notable individuals like Leonard Bernstein, Arthur Miller, Robert Kennedy, and Julie Harris. And these individuals were profiled and they were notably profiled as part of this particular type of story, which he began to tell. His largest body of work, according to our author again, might have been characterized as ethnography. From country to country, he systematically sought out and photographed the same human activities and institutions, the marketplace, the church, synagogue or mosque, the parks where children played and adults relaxed, kindergartens and universities, concerts, plays, weddings, funerals, and people at work. And from peasant farmers to computer engineers, that is what he followed. And that is what he became and contributed to the world of photography. He wanted people, individuals, humans in their essence. And in 1954, a report on the people of Russia was arguably one of his greatest essays in this particular type of genre. But he also worked the streets of China, the streets of Cuba, India, Israel, Japan, Mexico, Turkey, and most European countries, and of course, the United States. And as the art world had claimed Cartier-Bresson, perhaps exhibiting his work in the world's most prestigious museums and publishing it in art book formats, it can be said, and this is something stated by our author, that it is important to remember that Cartier-Bresson was a magazine photojournalist. So most of his great images, or most of the greatest images that he ever took, would never have been taken without assignments from the picture magazines. 
And in the mid-1970s, for a variety of complex reasons, he actually disavowed photojournalism and photography and actually returned to his first love of drawing. But between contact sheets and captions and story manuscripts, as well as published writings and interviews, all of these actually demonstrated that during his active career from the 1930s to the 1960s, he thought and worked in the European tradition of magazine photojournalism. And in one particular interview, he said, people often say that I have been in the right place at the right time. What they really mean is that I follow the newspapers in order to get a sense of what is happening in the world. And in 1955, in his book called The Europeans, Brisson characterized the role of the photographic reporter by actually saying, quote unquote, I was there and this is how life appeared to me at that moment. And so taken together, these two statements, plus all these archives at Magnum Comp and Compass, the essence of his style of photojournalism. Again, anticipating a significant event, he also was able to get himself into position. He photographed with thoughtness or thoroughness. He edited his film, he added text and captions, and then, of course, through the picture magazines, he was able to communicate what he witnessed to a mass audience. And this essay or this article was written by Claude Cookman from Indiana State University. And so with that, my friends, we end. We hope that you will continue to listen to us and we've got more information about our wonderful women in photography for this month of March. We hope that you continue to tune in. We really, really, really appreciate if you listen to us on your Apple Podcasts. But again, you can get it wherever you get your podcasts. We are open to your attention. We are open to your discussions. We are open to your opinions and your thoughts, anything that you'd like to discuss with us, any ideas or suggestions are always welcome. This is an open space. This is an open photo space and we welcome anyone and everyone who wants to say something positive and something impactful in this, the photography art form. With that, guys, we end. We hope that you continue to tune in, tune in sorry, and listen to us and we'll catch you next time. Have a great night.